Ever wonder what a UFO sounds like? Some say Pine Bush, New York is the UFO capital. My guest tonight has produced audio and video recordings, has taken countless photographs, and has spent years documenting and researching UFOs. Tonight, Dr. Bruce Cornett is here, and we talk about his research and about the silent invasion of Pine Bush, New York. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. Bruce Cornett received his master's degree in paleobotany from the University of Connecticut and earned PhDs in geology and paleontology from Penn State. He spent 11 years in the oil industry and has published 21 scientific papers, a couple of books, and numerous abstracts on subjects in paleobotany, paleontology, and geology. They are all accessible on researchgate.net. In 1992, Bruce Cornett discovered that he lived next to a UFO hotspot. From 1983 to 1986, the Hudson Valley, New York, experienced one of the most witnessed and widespread UFO outbreaks in modern history and was reported by more than 5,000 residents. Bruce began an exhaustive three-year, 24-square-mile magnetic survey, discovering many geomagnetic anomalies underground, along with documenting over 137 close encounters with unconventional aircraft. Tonight, we are going to talk about the silent invasion of Pine Bush, New York, with Dr. Bruce Cornett. Welcome, sir, and thank you for being on the program. Thank you, Cameron, for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for... uh, for being so gracious and and showing up on such short notice, I very very appreciate this. Um, Bruce, you you came from a very very solid background, and I think palynology is one of the most fascinating fields of research that I know of as a scientist that a scientist could choose. Um, have you always been interested in UFOs though, and how did you get started and in, in interested in um, in in the paranormal? Okay, um, I was always curious about UFOs. But I never knew uh, that uh, thought that I had seen one. Um, I even w- at at the at a well site where I, I was uh, the president of, of an independent oil company. Um, we had a UFO sighting, and I thought I had missed it. What I didn't realize is that uh, my whole crew witnessed me being abducted, and it wasn't until 1995 that I um, was hypnotically regressed and discovered that I was. Uh, indeed an abductee and it was in 1992 
that I saw a miniseries on television called Intruders by Bud Hopkins uh, with a um, with a added material by Dr. John Mack. And I was shocked as a scientist since my whole career had been in academia and I had rarely ever talked about UFOs because that is not a subject that is um, tolerated within my uh, with my academic peers. Sure. So um, um, I saw this miniseries and I was shocked that it was on primetime television. You know, that's like seeing uh, the equivalent of, of um, a movie like Deep Throat on, 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 on supper time for right. all the kids to see, right? And th- this was really a shocking to me. Um, so I went to the bookstore and wanted to get the book that was advertised. And uh, the manager showed me the book, uh, you know, Intruders. And, I, and he said, you might want to get this other book. And then it was Silent Invasion by Ellen Crystal. So I purchased them both. And when I was reading Silent Evasion, uh, I was saying, what is this? Th- this road, this place is right down the road. This is right next door. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, oh, this is ridiculous. I haven't seen any UFOs here. Right. So I contacted some friends who knew her and they got me her phone number and I called her up and I said, um, would you be willing to take me out into the field and, and show me this stuff? I, you know, I told her my background in science. And I said, uh, my last name is Cornette, and you're a musician, and your last name is Crystal, mm-hmm. and I'm a geologist. Uh, we might be able to get along together. And uh, so um, she said yes. And she picked me up with a group that she was taking out into the field to Skywatch. And that first night I was out there, I was blown away. Uh, we had ships coming in, many, most of them seen only by their lights, uh, and they would fly over us or fly around us and then dive into the ground and disappear. Or they would come up out of the ground. And wait a minute. Uh, this is not possible. This is going on right here in a rural area with with homes and residences all around. And then, and then I quickly found out and I realized from reading her book that the whole region, people were well aware of this uh, UFO phenomena. That is where the name Pine Bush became associated with it. And uh, we had uh, uh, lots of uh, local residents uh, telling their stories about what they had seen. Well, I decided to do a scientific investigation on it at that particular time. Um, She had said, Ellen Crystal had said, that she uh, thought that there was an underground alien base. And I said, well, I work at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, and uh, one of, uh, you know, I'm associated with their uh, paleomag department, and they have instrumentation there, uh, equipment that I could use to detect um, underground um, magnetic activity, in other words, artificial activity. Um, I So let me ask you this really quick. What do they use... Um you're talking about paleomagnetism and, and what, what sort of study, you know, what, what practical application was, were they using at the observatory? I, I was part of a, um, the, the largest and most expensive uh, or costly uh, drilling program funded by National Science Foundation to drill seven wells in the Newark Basin. Um, I was the, assigned as the well site geologist, so I had to describe all 28,000 feet of core that we pulled out over a three-year period from there. And the purpose of those cores was to 
uh, document the cyclical cl- uh, variation in lake and, and uh, playa and floodplain sediments that are, uh, indicate uh, climatic cycles uh, of uh, 21,000 years, 100,000 years, 400,000 years, etc. And um, that data, those data have been uh, crunched and, and worked uh, for d- decades now, and there are hundreds of papers out there on this uh, that uh, document a 30 million year period of time uh, in Earth's history back during the late Triassic, prior to the Jurassic, where we have um, uh, these uh, cyclical climate conditions, very much like we have now and with the, um, uh, with the uh, ice ages, but they didn't have ice age back then at that time. And um, they do a magnetic paleomag study. That's what uh, Dennis, Dr. Dennis Kent, who was associated with Dr. Paul Olson, they um, were the prim- primary or principal investigators. And uh, Kent has, um, uh, within his lab, done an amazing amount of work on documenting the paleomagnetic orientation of the uh, uh, magnetic poles of the Earth all the way through those cores and come up with... Um, dozens and dozens of pole reversals. So in terms of uh, our, what's going to happen fairly soon, within probably some of our lifetimes of a pole flip, this is very relevant information. And um, so that's what they were doing. They were uh, documenting climate change in the past and how it relates to today. So that, that reference material is basically there for, for, for the taking for anybody who can find it useful and it's there forever and it basically uh, is going to be useful forever, correct? Right, right. You just have to go to um, uh, Columbia University, Lamont Doherty, and uh, Google Dr. Paul E. Olson and go to his CV and, and pull up his list of publications and it's page after page after page after page. And you'll find my name in there in quite a few publications uh, as I was a co-author or a principal author. And uh, yeah. So you were, you were going to be, you were suggesting to Ellen Crystal that you use this technology. Right. And uh, she didn't under, quite understand what, what I was doing. And that was one of the reasons why we eventually broke up. Um, because she was not interested in, in, in seeing the data I was collecting or understanding the purpose of it. And here I was out there trying to prove her theory that there's an underground alien base. I mean, it would have, have probably blown her mind if she could comprehend that, but she was not a scientist. And uh, so she had a difficulty understanding what, what I was doing out there in the field, and I think she felt threatened uh, by my background and my... Um, uh, what I was discovering. So whatever the, the case, we uh, worked together up until 1994, and we had an agreement whereby, um, on a contract, uh, that we would share all of our data that we collected together out in the field. I went out with her for that m- from 1992 to 1994 in the field, and we photographed stuff together. So there are many sightings where there are pictures that we both took of the same lights at the same time which is pretty neat and getting, uh, you know, confirmation of what, what was going on. And, um, uh, after that, uh, which was really strange after she, um, uh, uh, went off on her own, um, or I went off on my own, uh, when I went out in the field, the, the craft kept on coming to me and kept on putting on performances for my cameras. And, uh, all of the stuff we collected together, 
before 1994, um, I have duplicate material after that. Uh, they would keep on coming back and giving me more data. Uh, so uh, that, that is, in a nutshell, uh, the history of what went on. So, uh, did you you started that in 1992? Was yes. your magnetic survey, and how long did that take? Three years, and it involved 1,800 different stations. Each station was a place on a on a map, uh, lo- a location where I would go and take readings, magnetic readings, and then some of them there were certain ones that I went back to again and again uh, to get uh, um, uh, you know, additional uh, data that would uh, confirm. Uh, whether or not that magnetic field was was stationary or stable at that particular point, because the uh, the problem uh, with magnetic data is that depending on when you take those readings during the day, the sun has an effect on on the magnetism. So the, your magnetic values can fluctuate uh, from day to night. So I in, tried to go out uh, at night uh, most of the time after I got off from work, so to have uh, uh, consistent readings at night. And so, did you, at the at that point when you first started, did your research initially have a, a hypothesis, or were you just did you just go out there to see see if you could find some kind of anomaly out there? I had to do a a an extensive map of uh, 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 locations before I could even determine whether or not uh, anything anomalous was there. Right. What, what I found very early on in my investigation, like on the first or second day, some anomalous stuff that was going on. Ellen took me to this Jewish cemetery along Route 52 between Walden and Pine Bush. And she said a lot of activity goes there. And we've seen craft come right around, dive down into the neighboring cornfield, come across and fly uh, over the, the top of us again and again. So, and she claims in her book that she's seen aliens running into the woods locally. So I thought this would be, uh, you know, a good place uh, to take readings. And the first readings I was taking when I went out there with a magnetometer, everywhere I went, Cameron, there were these magnetic spikes. I mean, really significant magnetic spikes of of 10 to 11,000 gammas, which is about 10 to 15% of the Earth's total magnetic field. And this is much higher uh, magnetism than you will find uh, from a, uh, um, a a transformer for electric lines, if you go near them, or, or high-powered electric lines. And I would say, what in the world is going on? Is this magnetometer uh, malfunctioning? I took it back to the lab. They checked it out. works fine. I went back out in the field, and all those spikes had disappeared, except in the front of the, the, the cemetery, in one location, the spikes were still there. Can you get any indication of what kind of depth that you're, that this magnetism is coming from? They were so powerful that it would seem to have been a very shallow depth. I mean, I couldn't uh, estimate exactly how deep, but um, what I did with my total map is discover a number of natural magnetic highs and lows that were anomalous in sense that they were not normal. And because of the tilt of the rocks in the earth, the, uh, what is causing those natural anomalies actually comes to the surface and is exposed in the southern part of the Wallkill River Valley as mountains. And you can climb these mountains. There, there, the, there are two mountains, one called Mount Adam and the other called Mount Eve right next door. 
and they are granitic mountains with a lot of very exotic minerals in them, including iron and, and emery deposits. So I knew, based on that, that the these anomalies that I was seeing below the surface further north of that area um, were probably indicating uh, ancient islands in, a, in, a, in an Ordovician sea right. over 400 million years ago. And there were some of the mountaintops of these islands that stuck up uh, to the surface, and, and you actually had granite right there, uh, pods of granite, uh, where the top of a peak of a mountain was sticking up uh, to the surface. So I was able to confirm this. And what I discovered through mapping and through uh, recording uh, sightings over the years was that most of the um, anomalies had UFO activity associated with them. Right. The lights would appear over these, where these islands were underground, and they would be seen diving into the uh, ground at those locations and coming out of the ground at those locations. So I, I you know, thought it was uh, uh, pretty uh, convincing that they were using the those granitic uh, bodies as uh, for their underground bases. Now, surra- surrounding those islands was black. Um, ocean muds called Ordovician black shales. And um, they would not make a good uh, a matrix or, or material for a building an underground uh, cavity in, okay, a cave or a tunnel. What's the, what's the topography of, of that area like? What's it look like from the air and what's it look like from the ground? Is it, is it mountainous or is it, there is are it two, flat? There are two mountain ranges. The... Um, um, the Schwangunk Mountains to the west, and uh, there is another series of mountains to the east um, that run uh, parallel to one another. And the Wallkill River Valley is actually a, an anticline or a monocline that has been uplifted and eroded so that the uh, softer rock is uh, in the valley and the harder rock is on the, in the mountains on either side. And... Um, the softer rock also has these granitic bodies, or that I interpret as having been ancient islands, in the embedded within the softer rock. So um, the activity that I've seen is pretty much concentrated along this ridge of or linear uh, uh, group of islands that were on the edge of tectonic plates that formed billions of years ago. And uh, what is interesting about this area, Cameron, is that there's a mine in Franklin, New Jersey, right on the edge of of New York, right on the side of the uh, valley, on the eastern side, where mining, deep mining has gone on for uh, for many, many decades. Now the mines are closed, but they they went down, you know, uh, almost a mile, and, and they were finding all these exotic minerals, everything you could possibly imagine. Uh, and the only way you can explain such a diversity of minerals is that if you were dealing with rocks that formed before the mantle of the earth and the crust right. were differentiated enough to, that they, those minerals were separated out. And that, that would make it an ideal uh, source of, uh, for mining for any ET uh, civilization. If they found those deposits, they would want to... Um, land on on those islands and mine those deposits so is there active mining in that area at all or is it uh is it it disturbed is all that property there disturbed has there been much excavation or is it 
is it new virgin land? Uh, no, no, it's it's uh, to the north, up uh, near. Um, let's see, uh, a number of places to the north, um, up towards the Connecticut border. There are were ancient mines, iron mines in in the mountains, quite a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've even found these iron these pits that are now grown over and trees growing out of them where they were excavating the, the, this granite that came to the surface and trying to uh, uh, find uh, iron deposits. And so there has been a, a considerable amount of mining um, during the 19th century and early 20th century in those areas. So you're going back and forth with this equipment from Columbia. Mm-hmm. What, how did that uh, go over with your uh, colleagues and um, did they find out about your interest in UFOs? Yeah, I, I mean, I was doing quite fine being, you know, uh, they didn't ask me what I was going to use the magnetometer for. They let me have it. And I went out there in the field and kept it for for weeks and even months and um, uh, actually years. I mean, if you take the three years that I worked on this and uh, it wasn't until I got hooked up with Ellen Crystal. I mean, and she was getting a lot of press on the activity going on there. And at the beginning, in the first few months, she had reporters coming from Middletown, where I lived, out and um, talking with her and wanting to do a story on her, and they included me. So lo and behold, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, a, a, a major uh, spread in the local newspaper, the Herald Times, came out on, on the UFO believers. And... Um, uh, of course, there were other people that I worked with at Lamont that lived in the same area and got that newspaper. Well, when they found the newspaper and there was this whole article about Ellen and me uh, chasing UFOs, guess what? My boss uh, got a copy of that paper on his desk. Huh. <laughs> so that was when the the cat was out of the bag, okay? And... Um, yeah, I, it it was a major um, uh, confrontation. Let's put it that way. He was very upset that um, I was involved in this because it reflected on him. Right. Of course, uh, he was um, getting the millions of dollars uh, uh, for the university through the National Science Foundation. And if they had found out that he, he was he, any of his associates were were working with or studying UFOs, he he probably would have had his grants canceled. And that would have jeopardized his his uh, job and income. So he was challenging me on what I was doing. There's no such thing as UFOs. No, you weren't doing this. You were moving the camera. No, it couldn't be um, what you say it was. And I said, well, why don't you just look at it? No, 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 I'm not going to uh, look at it. If you want to continue this work, you're going to have to leave, essentially, is what he said. So I I turned in my resignation. Um, And... uh, uh, th- this was very strange because it was at that sa- very same time that I uh, met my um, next wife after my late wife died earlier that year. And uh, she asked me uh, whether or not uh, I would want to uh, help raise her children because she was a workaholic, a computer programmer, and uh, spent, you know, like uh, 80 hours a week, uh, you know, at work. And uh, she had to hire a uh, babysitter to raise her children. And I, I said, well, this is a good deal. You know, um, I get, get to, uh, if I, my job will become uh, a house husband. And, uh, 
and she would support me, and that's what happened. For uh, uh, many years, she, uh, uh, she, her income was high enough that she could fund my uh, research in, in Pine Bush. And you're still doing the research that whole time as well? Well, I'm not collecting more data. I'm analyzing the data that um, I have collected, and it's just lots and lots of data. Uh, I have over 260 web pages out there, uh, at least 200 of which deal with the subject. And uh, those are all generated or created in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they are still active. So how do you think that your methods of investigating, like in the, the pine bush phenomenon, differ from others, from from even how Crystal conducted her field investigation? Most of um, the people who um, study the subject are dealing with uh, lights and sightings that have been made by others. Okay, so they are just investigating and re reporting on what others have seen. Very few of them get to see the phenomenon uh, up close and personal, as I did. And uh, Ellen Crystal also had the phenomenon. She had the craft following her around in the roads and um, doing all sorts of stunts around her, but she um, didn't realize uh, the importance of photo photographing it uh, with time exposures. Um, she just wanted to take, you know, single shot shots of the lights, and that's all she, you see in her book. And some right. of the some of her pictures are really good. Um, and there were sky groups of people that went out on on regular basis, three or four times a week, mostly on the weekends and uh, uh, looked for lights, and the lights would come out and put on uh, uh, performances for the people, you know, and uh, people wanted to see UFOs. So this was more uh, for entertainment than it was for science. And, and I tried what, to get... That's another... Uh, let me just ask you this really quick. While I'm thinking about it, you um, you mentioned other people. Now, This there's people that live in this area. What What stories are you hearing from other people in this area while you're doing your research? Everything you could imagine. I mean, all the the lights coming by their house, by their windows at night, uh, seeing stuff coming out of the ground, seeing lights coming out of the ground. Oh, they have. Uh, I mean, there's a, um, a researcher by the name of, uh, what is it, uh, Zimmerman, Linda Zimmerman. And she's written now two books on In, in the Night Sky and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she has gone out there and been interviewing hundreds of people that um, – I have had witnesses uh, witness these lights back during the 90s, and she's reporting on them. And this is fantastic because it's showing just how many people have actually seen these things. But most of them are anecdotal reports, uh, very few photographs, mostly drawings. Uh, you know, they'll so, show a drawing of what it looked like that they saw. And uh, you can't really do very much with that. And that's why I wanted to apply the scientific method of, of reproductive. Uh, now, this, this is an opportunity to get re reproducible results. I mean, if I go out to the same locations and set up my cameras and these craft come around and put on these performances and display their, their capabilities, uh, their, their flight uh, envelopes, so to speak, and what they could do with their uh, plasma lights, um, and do it over and over and over again, uh, it, you have reproducibility. So it, it raises the level that this stuff is for real, and it's not just somebody's imagination. And when you can graph the, the lights and the movements and, and uh, 
uh, some of the really, really strange things that uh, these lights can do. Um, it, now it's finally, I'm, I'm starting to get people to pay attention. And uh, we can only benefit from uh, the work that I did and uh, helping us understand what it is that we're dealing with. I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm uh, working on now is, is going to be publishing more on this is uh, how just what the capabilities of these pilots were, okay, that were flying these ships. In addition, I was, uh, we were given demonstrations uh, by craft that were, we were later told that uh, by people within the military that we had been approved by the Pentagon for having, for example, the TR-3B uh, from, uh, built by Skunk Works to um, give us a demonstration of its performance capabilities. And on the 17th of May, 1997, um, Mark Whitford, um, <clears throat> Dinah Bertrand, and myself were on, on a location um, on the west side of the valley on a, on a road on the side of a, a ridge and uh, waiting for something to happen. We had no idea that this was being set up for us and uh, later confirmed that what we actually saw and recorded on our camcorders and time exposures was uh, a demonstration of an ARV, in other words, wow. alien reproduction vehicle. Sure. And you can go on to the Bufad website and you can pull that up and you can see it. And it is unbelievable. Um, and thank God for both the, the time exposures and the videos. Um, we got everything. This, this was a craft that hovered at the end of Muddy Kill Lane. And we said, what is that light doing down there? And uh, so we turned our cameras towards it. And as soon as it, the pilot knew that we were focused on it, he started his run at us. Mm -hmm. And he was only maybe 500, 400 feet above the ground, okay? And maybe less. And uh, as he started coming towards us, he tilted his, his craft at a 45-degree angle but was coming at us straight. Right. Now, the first thing you know if you're a, a pilot is that you can't tilt the wings of a fixed-wing aircraft 45 degrees and stay airborne. You'll have to bank or turn. Now, that's the only way you can uh, stay oriented that way with your wings to the ground is if you are banking and, and, and going against the air to keep you up. Um, and, but this craft did not change altitude. It, it brightened and dimmed its lights and flashed them back and forth. So it was signaling us, and we knew at that point, okay, we, we, something big is happening. When it got close enough to us that we could actually start to see its shape, it was a triangle, and it banked to our right or its left, and it continued to roll as it banked over onto its back <laughs> and then was flying uh, eastward away from us Incredible. on its back and turned sideways so that it was flying upside down and sideways as it flew away from us. And then we have it on video flipping over uh, right side up and then diving towards the ground and slowing down as it dove based on the blinking lights on it, you can see that it was getting slow. It was descending slower and slower and slower. And any aircraft, fist wing aircraft that dives at that angle at maybe a 50 or 60 degree angle is going, gravity is going to make it go faster and faster and faster. But this craft was slowing and slowing and slowing. And finally it got down almost to uh, just hovering and then it went down uh, to the tree level, off in the distance, and, and flew behind some trees and disappeared.
So it went below tree level, below FAA minimum flight altitude. Right. So um, it, it, was a, it was a beautiful example uh, of, of uh, basically screaming out to us and the world, we have this technology. And yet we see everywhere people debating as to whether or not we have this technology. And uh, you're good. So did this craft make any noise as it's going overhead? A little bit of noise as it passed us. We were, uh, uh, you could hear me saying, "Don't be surprised that if it when it flies over us, it's going to sound like a jet." Oh, I did and, hear that one. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. as it starts to turn, it it um, uh, you can hear this rush. Now, whether that's just rush of air on it or this was a, a secondary propulsion system, uh, a more conventional propulsion system, I don't know. Um, but uh, many of these early uh, attempts at anti-gravity craft are going to be hybrids. I mean, uh, even the B-2 bomber and the uh, F-117 have some alien technology uh, in part of them. But there is an additional uh, version of the F-117 that I've seen and photographed. And on my um, uh, Facebook page, I give a, a video of that triangle and I'm getting debate from other people. Well, this is, I see wings. I think this is just an aircraft. Right. And I'm saying, pay close attention uh, to the sound. The sound was analyzed and it was a reverse Doppler. Say so you don't get reverse Doppler with conventional engines. And uh, usually it indicates anti-gravity. And I said, the, in, in uh, doing a careful analysis of the images um, uh, and uh, with computer enhancement, I was able to... Uh, identify a, a peaked uh, cockpit on top of this triangle, much like the peaked cockpit on an F-117. But that cockpit spread out to the uh, ends of the triangle. It, didn't, it wasn't confined within the center of the triangle. So um, it was something quite, quite different. And, uh, but um, I have a number of different uh, videos of that type of craft. Uh, but then what were they doing flying around pine bush? Right. What are and, they doing? Yes. And uh, the only thing I can think of that makes any sense, and I've heard this explanation from others, is they wanted to be associated with the UFO phenomenon. They wanted to be identified as UFOs. Why would you think that? Have no idea? idea. No. Tell me. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, what what is the uh, the the propaganda and and the narrative that's put out by the government and the CIA? Yeah, oh. yeah, we're trying to hide uh, hide technology and we're doing something, but uh, you know, no, if, we, if it's we don't UFO, want anybody else to know. Right, but if it's a UFO, oh, it's just a UFO. It's not a threat. Right. They're not a threat. Okay. So if you see a UFO and you think it's a UFO, it's not a threat. Right. Right. What what does that do? It opens the door for uh, our ARVs to fly over Russia right, or China. Exactly. And, and people will see them, ah, it's just a UFO. Just a UFO. Yeah, that's amazing. Talk, talk a minute about uh, a couple of times you, br you brought up reverse Doppler. Anybody that's listening that doesn't know exactly what you're referring to, talk about that. Okay. Uh, I recorded the sounds that these craft would make, and many of them that when they flew over me, and I'm talking about the ETVs now. And even though the ARVs produced jet-like sounds, the, they, uh, the, unless they have anti-gravity and a hull on them, they will not produce reverse Doppler. 
all the ones that were legitimate um, uh, non-human uh, technology and hardware, uh, such as the Manta Ray, which was a huge vehicle, it was a diamond-shaped vehicle, and it was ca capable of transforming and pulling in its tail and becoming a triangle or extending its tail and becoming a diamond and moving its lights around on it and extending them out further in front of it or, or retracting them and in a way that uh, conventional aircraft cannot. And um, these, I've had quite a few of these uh, demonstrations uh, by the Manta Ray, and they always would produce a sound like that, some sound. Sometimes it was uh, not like a, that of a jet. Uh, many times it was like that of a jet. Um, and when I analyzed them on, uh, on sound spectrogram, I was shocked to find that the... Uh, the freak, the sounds that it was producing, were divided up into individual frequencies. This is not what you get when you record the sounds of a, a conventional turbofan engine. And uh, even though you will get different bands of frequencies produced by turbofan engines, you do not get a consistent uh, level of individual frequencies that remain separate all the way through uh, the 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 recording. And these are separated you know, maybe 12 in a bundle. And uh, as the craft is coming towards the microphone, you can hear the sound that this craft is making from a half a mile away. Right. Most aircraft, when you look at them and, and you can't, and if they're coming towards you, you can't hear them very well until they're almost on top of you. And then once they pass over you, you hear the thunder of the exhaust coming out the, the back of the engines and the whole area shakes, Right. Uh, but you can't hear a jet half a mile away coming towards you very easily. All of these craft would produce a sound where the volume of that sound would increase and increase and increase and increase as it got closer and closer to the microphone. And the sound frequencies would all drop. Normally, a normal Doppler is where as a sound source is coming towards you, the pitch should rise. And as, as it moves away from you, the pitch should drop. Right. The reverse Doppler is just the opposite. As these sounds were coming, projecting at, at me, uh, they, as they approached, this, the frequency would drop. And get really low. And then it would pass over. And as it moved away, the sound frequency right. would rise. That's reverse Doppler. And they're now finding out that there are certain types of synthetic materials and structured materials, metamaterials as they call it, where they're micro-layered, uh, will reverse uh, this Doppler effect. And there, there are actually uh, papers out now of, of, of demonstrating reverse Doppler with these types of materials. And this is also allegedly the, the type of material that they found uh, when they studied the fragments of the uh, Roswell crash, the same type of metamaterials. So this is a hot subject right now, extremely hot, because it's um, in the, what we have to, to now do is figure out how to manufacture uh, these types of materials uh, so that we can, uh, because they are responsible for reducing the speed of light and reducing gravity. They can uh, allegedly... According to Jack Sarfati, um, you know, uh, slow light down and almost stop it. 
And um, when that happens, uh, uh, the uh, the physics just come unscrambled, un- unattached, and, and <laughs> gravity disappears. Right. So I got to tell you, Bruce, um, I, before we started recording, I told you I had a story. Um, yes, go ahead. So like the last three weeks, I was I was listening to your to to you on YouTube, and um, one of your one of your videos has has the sound of one of these crafts right at the beginning of it. Right. And, you know, to anybody who just listened to it for a moment may think it's a, it's, it's a jet, but it's different. It's very, very different. So I hadn't listened. I didn't listen to that one. I think I listened to that one uh, Monday night. And um, when I heard it, heard that sound, you know, I recognize that sound. I've, I've heard that um, sound four times, now five times in my life. Um, one time when I was a kid, um, and I have a, a, a podcast about this, I was out with two other friends and we were out walking in the prairie and two of us decided to go home and we were, you know, six or seven miles away from home. And all of a sudden there's that sound and it's coming from everywhere. And it's there for, I, it had to be 20 minutes to 20 to 40 minutes somewhere in there, you know, maybe, maybe a half hour. And it scared my friend and I so bad that we ran, you know, most of the way home. And uh, it it was just literally in our bones. I mean, it was coming from everywhere. Um, we're, we're out on the prairie in Montana. You can see thousands of miles in every direction. And uh, um, there's nothing, nothing there. And uh, there was nothing overhead. Um, when we first heard it, it came rushing in very loud. And then it tapered off a little bit. But you know, it stayed, it's the volume stayed the same for, for a long, long time. And, and, you know, I hadn't, hadn't, um, heard anybody else that had heard, heard something like that, that long, but, uh, real scary as a kid. But, um, now I want to go fast forward to now, um, last Sunday, you know, I still live in Montana and I do see things from time to time. And, um, you know, I, I take notice more of things that, that I can't explain because, um, you know, I used to just write them off as, as aircraft. Maybe I couldn't see properly or whatever, but, um, Sunday night, it's about seven o'clock and the sun is almost down. It's behind the mountain. So the, so where I am, it's, 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 it's a bit dark, but the sky is still very, very well lit up. And it was partly cloudy with, um, big, big blue sky patches that you could see up there. But, um, I was just getting ready to go in the house and, um, I heard that exact same noise that's on that video and it, it sounded like, uh, I don't, I, I don't say, I don't want to say freight train, but, um, some big craft just, it was like, it was initially as loud as it could possibly be like it was putting on the brakes and then it backed off and, um, and then it tapered off and I looked up. And the first thing that I see, I see, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right over the path of that jets take, um, there's an airport about 15 miles away and, um, they come right over the house quite frequently. So I do see a jet up there, but the front of it has way too many lights. I mean, the front of this jet has lights all over it and I can see the perfect shape of a jet, um, with, you know, a passenger size jet, but 
in the front of it, there's something on top of it. I mean, there's literally something on top of this jet, you know, and it's light up there. I can see it. I could see one time in my life I saw, I saw um, planes in the sky refueling. And for a moment, that's what I thought I was looking at. I thought there was another plane on top of it, but then it's a passenger jet. But this, whatever was above it, right at the front of the plane, which stuck out over the plane, and it was rounded, you know, and it looked like two other little wings coming off each side of the, the nose of the plane. And, you know, it, it made this, it just came crashing in, and I looked up, and it came out from, it was, there was clouds there, and all of a sudden it was visible, and the noise tapered off to, like, nothing, and it literally made probably a, a 60 degree left hand turn, a flat left hand turn. And I swear to you, it slowed down to almost nothing and then took off again and back into the clouds and was gone. And but it was that noise. I mean, but I mean, it, it shook, shook the ground. It was so incredibly loud. I mean, it literally sounded like there was a huge aircraft of some kind coming to a screeching halt. And I'm saying screeching because that was part of it too. And that one I can't explain. Mm. And, um, you know, when, when you describe the shape of what you saw and that it sometimes looks like a, a, a commercial aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's listen to one of your recordings so we can get an idea of what one of these things basically sounds like. important thing is it was so loud that it set all the dogs around the neighborhood that I was on barking. They're all, right. you know, and, and then, and it was sort of a hazy out. So you couldn't see the stars or the moon. And, uh, you just, I just heard this sound coming from the direction of Stewart airport, flying over the ridge, going West and, uh, saying, wait a minute, that is a, a reverse Doppler effect. Okay. And yeah. I had, and it, it sort of, tried to sound like a C5 uh, air aircraft, a jet aircraft. And the Stewart Airport is a C5 base where they uh, have many of these uh, large cargo planes and they train pilots to fly them there. So we see C5s flying around the valley quite frequently. And I got a, a recording of one taking off from the airport and it doesn't sound anything uh, like uh, like that. It was, it was a typical uh, normal Doppler uh, with increasing frequencies on approach and decreasing frequency on departure. But that sound that I was trying to sh uh, play for you um, was the exact reverse, and it, it just thundered. And at what was really bizarre, and not to try to outdo your, your sighting or your uh, hearing of what you experienced, but that afterwards I, I was looked at, you know, 
in the direction where it had come from. And it looked like a rocket was taking off from the valley. I mean, really? these lights were flashing and flashing, going up vertically into right. the sky. What was that? I mean, we don't have any any planes that can fly, uh, you know, ascend almost vertically unless they're making a hell of a lot of noise. Right, and, a lot uh, of noise. And uh, there wasn't any noise coming from this. You know, I so, think that that <laughs> living in this area that's got to be so disruptive to people living there. I mean, this this is going on every night, right? Uh, not well at the time. This was very active, and there were a lot of people out uh, sky watching. I mean, they came out and put on put on performances. Entertain they entertained the, the the locals who wanted to see this stuff. And then when there was an ordinance that was passed in '97 that uh, outlawing uh, sky watching on along the rural roads because the realtors were complaining that they uh, that it was affecting their property values and they're building new homes. Um, the the ordinance you know shut down the activity and when the people disappeared the activity disappeared. So there's that many people out there looking every night at that time. Oh yeah, I mean wow. uh, five, a minimum of four or five, as many as twenty at a time. Wow. And so everybody there knew it, and everybody's out there, <laughs> or they're yeah. coming, and people are coming from all over the place. I would imagine. Right. By and, you know in the in the mid '90s to see this. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the wow. word spread. And I mean, we had people from, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, miles away coming to want to have an experience. They want to see this for themselves. And interestingly enough, I met more than one skeptic. Oh, I, I don't believe in UFOs. I just want to come out here to, to get confirmation that they don't exist. And I said, well, good luck. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're going to have to close your eyes and block your ears. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, no matter what they saw, they probably wouldn't be convinced, but unless that's why I recorded all of this stuff, right. you know, on, on uh, video, on time exposures and audio and with magnetometer to be able to document that this was not normal. So you're out there, um, wandering around a lot and you put on a lot of miles out there alone. So what was that like? Um, you're out there doing most of your magnetic research in the, in the daytime. No, no, it's always at night. Oh, they only okay. come out. Oh, running, uh, doing the magnetometer yes, yes, stuff. Yes. yes. On the weekends, I would do it during the day. Yes. So how about during all the time you spent in the daytime? Did you ever have any, um, any, any of the same experiences, but were able to visualize these things in, in daylight? Uh, I'll have to say possibly. Okay. But most of the time people would agree that we don't see these things. And one of the, uh, um, people put, set up their camcorder and just during the day and was just videotaping the, over the, uh, the area of the fields where the craft would, would fly. And, uh, she slowed the video down, uh, because she saw something strange on it. And when she got it down to a very slow speed, you know, by frame, by frame, by frame, she saw this craft coming right up, uh, uh out of above the trees and you reach a certain altitude and then take off like a bat out of hell. And it was all happened within less than a second. So these craft were flying during the day, but they were flying faster than the human eye could see. Right. Are people seeing um, aliens? I mean, has there been any reports of people seeing, um, you know, some sort oh, of form uh, walking or? Oh, yeah. Ellen reports in a book and she gives a drawing of the alien she saw walking in a field near her. Uh, she was shocked. Right. And other people oh, have to see, see, see these aliens, too. Uh, as I said, 
my documentation has shown that they're living underground. And, and however they're doing this, what, uh, however they're capable of, of coming in and out of the ground, they're there. I mean, one of the funniest uh, uh, events I had was coming upon a, an, an intersection. This was in 1998 yeah, and July, and um, I was on one of the main roads, Albany Post, traveling north and towards uh, another road called Bruin Turnpike that, uh, that they met at uh, right angles. And um, it was in, in rural farmland, okay? And I knew that at this intersection, there was stop, four-way stop signs. So um, as I was coming uh, up to it at night, I saw these lights uh, above the intersection. And I said, wait a minute. What is that doing? So I grabbed my camcorder and started recording. And um, as I approached, I uh, got closer and closer and closer. The uh, lights started to tilt. And I said, whoa, okay, all right. And when I got up, uh, you know, within maybe um, uh, 50 feet of the intersection, the lights turned red. They were white lights, and they turned red. Two lights. And they are tilted to try to mimic a set of traffic lights. So I stopped because I had to stop. It was a st at a stop sign. And then the lights turned green. So I turned left and I pulled over the side of the road. And when I turned back to try to you know, get another glimpse of it, it had disappeared. And when I played back the video, and I have this uh, on my um, YouTube, uh, I'm not YouTube, um, on my Facebook uh, page, you can go to it and you can watch it. And, and it's just with, with some computer enhancement of the, the image closest to it, uh, you can see uh, the the different types of devices that are connected to between the two lights, and you can see a, a transparent dome over it. Wow! And uh, so this was a a what I call a uh, a shuttle runabout. Uh, somebody was uh, flying that thing, and they uh, saw me coming. And said, "Uh oh, we got to pretend we're a traffic light." <laughs> so um, uh, and when I passed under it, which was really funny. I got this telepathic thought in my head. I'm just a traffic light. I'm just a traffic light. My wife and I entertained a friend who, who came all the way up to uh, our house, and we went out to Pine Bush together, and she wanted to see the UFO. She yeah. had been abducted, and uh, we went to the local places, and uh, there was nothing, okay? And nothing happened. Um, and... Uh, she was really disappointed. In fact, she was more than disappointed. She was pissed off. And um, uh, so <laughs> so as we were leaving, okay, uh, we were driving through Walden and uh, on the, um, the east of the, the hotspot area. And we both all started having uh, these medical symptoms, dizziness, sickness to our stomach and everything. Right. And, and, uh, and Sharon was her name. She said, my God, they're doing this to me. They're, they're playing a trick. You know, she was swearing, you know, a blue streak of four-letter words. And it was funny. And, uh, and, and, and after she had finished swearing, the symptoms of this dizziness and uh, uh, sickness to our stomach disappeared. We continued uh, towards the, the 84. Uh, we were going to get on 84 and, and head on home. And... Um, 
as we got on the uh, entrance, you know, the uh, the ramp coming up to, uh, to the access to the uh, highway, we had just gotten on the highway. I was driving my van, and um, uh, I look in the rearview mirror, and I see these pair of lights, look like at a distance like truck lights. Okay, they were large, and but they were coming at us much too fast. Right. Okay, I would estimate they were approaching us at at a um, at a speed of well over 200 miles an hour. Okay, wow. and I, I screamed at them, and and looked behind us, and they screamed when they saw this <laughs> the, the pair of lights coming at us, and it was just above the road coming at us, and from behind. And I said, grab the, uh, the camcorder and get it recording, get it recording. So they were able to turn the, the, the camcorder on, but they weren't able to point it at the lights before it came over to us and uh, over to the right of us and was flying at our speed, at our highway speed. It slowed down, and it was pay, uh, right on top of the trees. And as soon as they pointed the, the camcorder at the trees, at the craft, and it was all lit up, it dove down into uh, an open area in the forest and disappeared. Holy cow! Now I have that um, on on a web page, and I you know I might be able to find the the link, but I, I include the recording, and it is hilarious hearing the women <laughs> scream and swear and everything else. <laughs> but you know, I at the after that was over, I said, "Well, Sharon, you got what you came for." Yes, they she gave did. you <laughs> your sighting. <laughs> oh my God! So let me ask you this: if you if you won, I don't even know if you would if you would continue to be a scientist if you won the lottery. But if you did win the lottery and you had that kind of money, what kind of research would you do in this area? Well, probably the first thing I do, and I'd get in a lot of trouble for it, because uh, the, I don't think the government would want me to do this. But I would hire. Um, uh, research firms that uh, could go out and map the area that I had started mapping, do it again, this time on a grid pattern uh, with, um, you know, not 1,800 stations, but uh, 18,000 stations or more, right. okay? And uh, to be able to document uh, all the magnetic activity that's going on there, and when they find something that's anomalous, to keep equipment there recording 24-7 so we can see what's happening. Now this this buried triangle that we, underneath the um, the Jewish cemetery, which measures at least 500 feet on a side, um, it sends signals out every time the constellation Bootes is overhead. Um, and uh, many times I'd gone there and and recorded where the signals had come out of the ground and there was nothing. And but then when I went back there and recorded again, because I would go back and, and record uh, routinely almost every night. I would record. I would find out uh, that you know, when it was active, I would check the star maps, and sure enough, Booties was on overhead. And um, so there we could set up equipment uh, and begin to monitor what's actually going on and document it more than just the way I've documented so far with uh, uh, anecdotal reports of people saying, well, the temperature dropped during the day and, and it rose during the winter and melted the snow and uh, that we heard these, felt these vibrations in the ground. And uh, when the, the plants were, were going to uh, the, the w wild plants, the, the wild onions were starting to bloom, they would, the uh, inflorescences, which would shoot up, turned back towards the ground and grow 
grew back down towards the ground. Now, what were they looking for? Uh, plants tend to grow towards an energy source. So if those, that, uh, those energy beams were active at that time, the plants um, would have uh, changed the direction of growth. Yes. And sure enough, um, I have the pictures of them. And I think I even have a, a press specimen of one of them in my collection. And it, it, it just mind-boggling that there's so much uh, activity there. Uh, and these magnetic beams that are coming out are only about, you know, two maximum two feet in diameter. But you can only detect them if you have a sensitive enough magnetometer that is pointing directly at the beam. And uh, it really scares me a little bit, Cameron, that before I realized what was going on and how much energy was coming out of the ground, I walked right over these things. Right. Okay. Um, and b one of them uh, was right next to this tree. And the amazing thing is that that tree today is magnetized. So uh, this was bizarre, too. Um, and, of course, the uh, ground-penetrating radar that uh, was done there by the History Channel showed That's that... That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, we found the edge of it. We, we cut a, a traverse across the, uh, the corner of the triangle. And sure enough, it's, it's there with the, the expected uh, deformation of the sediment around it and the faults that are associated with it and uh, with sediment uh, deposited on top of it. And uh, it is only about nine feet maximum below the surface. So it would not take a lot to dig down to it, take a, just a, a little, uh, you know, uh, a, a water well drilling rig to come in there and uh, put down a core. And uh, hopefully if, <clears throat> you know, when it got down to the, to the object, uh, the, the core would stop drilling. And we would pull up the bit and, and there might be some metal on the end of the, the drill bit. Do we want to use ground penetrating radar? Would, would that be perceived as some kind of a threat maybe, perhaps? I don't know. Well, I think we surprised it, maybe. Uh, but, I, you know, the only way you're going to find out is to try to do a series of traverses across it in such a way that, uh, you know, it would be a quick in and quick out. Um, and then to assemble the data. And maybe they will be able to interfere with it. I don't know. But initially, when we first, our first run or two would probably be um, uh, unaffected. But then if uh, every uh, subsequent run across the, the uh, different part of the triangle produced a different, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, interference, uh, um, you know, uh, blocking of the signals, radar signals, uh, that then we could have uh, evidence that it was actively trying to impede our investigation. So what's your legacy here? What, what, uh, where do your discoveries fit in humanity and science? Well, we have this very large organization called SETI that has been in power for decades. Ever since the government stopped funding, you know, it's now being funded by uh, private uh, uh, people and uh, rich people, literally, and they, um, uh, SETI has, has not come up with any major discoveries uh, of uh, ET signals, or they have not reported them, if they have. And uh, S Scott Stride and I uh, wanted to uh, try to, we created an organization called SETVI, Search for Extraterrestrial Visitation. Well, the people of SETI didn't like that. Okay, you can understand <laughs> yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we proposed in a paper we published 
that got best award and contact in context that um, um, we, if they you were to use their radio telescopes, the small ones and the, 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 the arrays of them that they have uh, and, and look for uh, electromagnetic uh, anomalies within our own solar system, we could perhaps detect the presence of uh, visiting alien uh, ships. Okay, because they're all going to give off some sort of radiation or signal that we might be able to detect. And, um, uh, the, of course, this never happened. We tried to get uh, Joe Firmage to fund us and back in 99, and, and he wasn't interested. And other people like Bigelow, I think uh, uh, my friend Scott went to Bigelow, or maybe it was his friend, uh, Walter Williams, went to, to Bigelow, and he wouldn't fund it. Um, so... It's almost as if they don't want to know the truth. You know, they don't want the answer. Um, but if you have a, a triangle that is sending beams out into space, I ask you this question. Doesn't it make sense that if we want to know how ET is communicating, we should load that uh, area up with all sorts of sensors and devices to, to, to figure out how it's doing it, What's, what energy it's, is coming out of those magnetic beams, and what is the central beam uh, that is different, that's a signal beam, what energy is, is being generated by that? Because if we could get that information, Cameron, then we could tune in to their frequencies. Right. And even if we I couldn't figure it out. Waterhole frequency. Yeah. Yeah, even if we couldn't figure it out now, maybe we could we could have that, you know, and, and in the future we right. could figure it out. So what what's yes. coming up for you in the future? Um, are you done researching that area? Are you are you still there? What's what's your plan? Well, I, I would love to get back there, but I would need some sponsors. Um, sure, I'm not really uh, needing to go back there. I have so much data that right now I'm nearing completion of my book on the uh, pine bush phenomenon or the uh, Hudson Valley uh, UFO phenomenon. And um, uh, I want to get that material out. Uh, but, you know, th we're going so quickly right now with so much new information coming out. And it, I have to make updates <laughs> to my book all the time. Sure. And um, so I, I'm going to have to call it quits at one point. N enough is enough. Let me get, uh, you know, print this thing out and submit it. But it's going to have to have uh, some CDs <coughs> associated, you know, in the in the uh, in a, in, a in a pocket within the book to have all of the um, the data, the actual uh, you know, image and sound data, because you can't produce sound in in a book. Correct. Uh, but if you have a CD with the recordings on it, they can pull that up and have the book on uh, in an electronic form, along with all of the uh, of the um, the sounds that go along with it. <laughs> Can you tell everyone so that's where, where I'm at right now? Right. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet if they want to look up your research? Sure. Um, the, the, probably the best, uh, one place to go is, is to mammoth internet. If they go to the, um, that interview with Jack Safadi on uh, star drive, uh, report, uh, on YouTube, at the bottom of the abstract, there are four web pages that are given there. I, I um, <clears throat> let me see if I can give read off the uh, the one on the Monmouth Internet. 
okay, it's HTTPS, right slash, right slash, uh, or uh, colon, right slash, right slash, user pages dot monmouth dot com, right slash, tilde b cornet, lowercase, right slash. Tilde is that um, character in the upper left of your keyboard. And uh, that will get you to my main webpage there. And from there, you can uh, find other links to my other webpages, both uh, a Serious Onion Works page and also the Bufod webpages over in the UK. And, <clears throat> and, they, uh, and they can Google you and they can find you everywhere. And also, you know, on YouTube, I, um, I'll also um, include those links on the podcast notes so people can, can find them there as well as my Facebook. And you're on Facebook. Right. And one of the strangest experiences I ever had, <clears throat> and one that has kept me uh, wondering exactly whose technology was this, was the one, uh, the webpage called, um, Have You Ever Been Followed Home by a Boeing 707? And this actually happened. And uh, this, is, this may sound crazy, but um, uh, I was coming home from work from Lamont Doherty, traveling north on the New York Thruway, and as I was approaching my the Harriman exit, uh, that would take Route 17 to Middletown, where I lived, uh, I saw this um, aircraft flying very, very low. I mean, this was um, much too low, well below 1,500 feet, uh, minimum FAA-approved altitude. And uh, it was below the top of <clears throat> the mountain on my right. And uh, that mountain rose only 200 feet above the valley. And as it was approaching me on my right side I was, uh, of, of the highway, uh, it flashed its lights three times. And I said, whoa. And the first thought that went through my head, this pilot's in trouble. He's trying to signal the people on the ground that he's going to have to land on the highway. And as the, I, I mean, my eyes were glued towards this, at this craft, this aircraft as it was coming towards me. And when it got up to me, <clears throat> before I reached my exit, it banked to its right and my left and flew across the highway at about, uh, say, 150 feet above the ground. And it took about three seconds to cross the highway. Now, at first you might say, well, this was a, a Boeing, it looked like a Boeing 707, but it had no engines on it. It was solid black, no markings, had no windows on it, a fuselage with wings and a tail stabilizer. And it, you know, Boeing 707 had a minimum uh, stall speed is around 150 knots. And uh, this thing was traveling at less than 50 miles an hour. And uh, so I uh, crossed the highway, I took my exit, and as I was traveling on 17 uh, towards uh, the west, towards sunset, it crossed over the highway three more times, from first from left to right, and then from right to left and left to right, uh, about you know half a mile in front of me. And at that point, I was shaking my head and saying, is this pilot trying to find a place to crash? And when I got to my exit, which was another 25 minutes away, at uh, Middletown, and took my at the exit ramp. Here I see this this craft. It was nighttime now, uh, coming towards me, and it came right up on top of me as I went down the ramp to the stoplight, and it hovered above me. 
And when the light turned green, I turned right and started down the highway looking uh, uh, 211 East, looking to see where it was. And it was uh, just moved slightly ahead of me. So I was traveling at 40, 45 miles an hour, which was the speed limit. And it was traveling a little bit faster, maybe 47, 40, 50 miles an hour. And I had to slow down for traffic, and it, I saw it continue on down the highway. Well, when I got home, I ran in, got my camera stuff, went out, and something told me this wasn't over. And, man, that it came back. It came back and circled over me two times, and I was able to get a whole series of photographs of it flying over me and uh, got very detailed pictures of, of uh, you know, all of its lights, et cetera, and its pulsing lights, its spiraling lights. And it was clearly not a conventional aircraft. And it even stopped right in front of me and then and started again moving. And so um, what, what was it? Whose was it? What Whose technology was it? Was it? Yes. And uh, I've talked to Betty Hill uh, back in early 2000 and uh, told her about that story. And she said, oh, yes, I've seen those too. I've seen them up here where I live. Uh, we go out and sky watch and every once in a while we'll see one of these things that we know it's not an, a conventional aircraft and it'll come around and it'll stop right over us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so uh, our, who's doing this? Who's flying this? Right. And for what purpose? I got to say that uh, <laughs> we as a, the, as a society that we are, I don't think we're the most effective sky watchers because um, even even last Sunday when I saw something that I would love to have a photograph of and I had a camera, you know, my phone in my pocket, I didn't reach for my phone. Um, just well, you know, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was too amazed to reach for my don't, phone. Don't, you're right. Don't kick yourself. Uh, they, if they don't want you to photograph it, they'll put a thought in your head not to. They'll, they'll block that. I've, I've seen that. I've driven down the highway uh, and uh, see this craft uh, hiding behind some trees. I mean, a big craft, okay, circular craft. And I, I immediately wanted to pull over the side of the road and get my camera, right? right. Now, all of a sudden, I, say, I get the thought, do not slow down. Do not stop. You know, And it was like a command. And... Uh, Unfortunately, I uh, was powerless to uh, to uh, fight it. So if if I went to Pine Brush today, or is it, it's Pine Bush, right? Bush, right. I, I would, I'm most likely not going to see what you saw back in the 90s. But around there, there are places, if you uh, get in touch with the local uh, UFOs group, which is uh, one a group that meets of, of um, uh, uh, people who, experiencers and abductees that meet there. I, I don't know where they're actually meeting right now. Um, there are several people I know. Um, Vinnie Police wrote the book, um, uh, Pine Bush Phenomena, and he's on Facebook. If you go to his webpage, he'll give you a phone number to call to call in and, and a sighting. And you can find out from him where uh, to other people to contact and where these meetings are taking place. In addition, Pine Bush has these annual uh, UFO meetings, or, 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 or what do you call them? Um, gatherings. Gatherings, right. Uh, uh, and, and, and they're quite something. I've been to them. And uh, they, all the merchants come out, and everything UFO-related you can, you can buy. And it's a lot of fun. So uh, yearly, they have these meetings. Dr. Bruce Cornett has been my special guest tonight. 
Thank you so much, sir, for being on the show. Cameron, I am delighted to be able to share this information because I think it is information that the people and public need to know. Amazing night. I wish you well with your research. I hope you can update us in the near future. Thank you. Good night, sir. Good night. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. Thank you again, Dr. Bruce Cornett, for being my guest. You can find Dr. Cornett's YouTube and Facebook page by following the links on the podcast notes. And thank you for listening to tonight's amazing podcast. I am Cameron Brower, and this is My Alien Life. <laughs>